Hi, welcome to Quid Pro's Quo. I'm Rin. And I'm Zach. And this week we're starting a new series uh, based on the book Real Artists Don't Starve by Jeff Goins, I believe it is. Yep. So this book takes as its premise that the uh, idea or the conception that we have about the starving artist is something that doesn't have to be a reality. That with the advent of the internet and with the way that the culture is shifting and the tools at writers' disposals is shifting, that it is no longer a necessity that an artist starves for their work. The book is directed towards all artists, not just writers, but we're going to be focusing on the application of the principles to writers specifically. The entire book centers on the attributes of what's called the thriving artists. Uh, Ren, what do you think of when you hear the word thriving artist? Well, when I think of a thriving artist or a thriving writer, um, I think that they're producing a lot, they're enjoying what they're producing, they are getting their work out into the world, Stuff like that. Yeah, they're kind of self-actualized as yeah. as a writer. Great. I think much the same way as somebody who is producing what they love, who loves producing it, um, and who is getting paid for what they are producing. Of course, getting paid is an important part of this uh, series. Yes. Um, which actually takes us to the first point that we're going to cover today, which is that the thriving artist makes money to make art. So... When Goins is talking about this, he's talking about putting the horse in front of the cart. Um, it is very difficult to make art if you are not in a position financially where you can cover the cost of living. That shouldn't come as any surprise. If you don't have you know, the necessities of life covered, then your time is going to be taken up trying to get those necessities rather than producing art. It's really hard to be creative when you're using all your energy to survive. Yes. So you have to have a baseline of comfortable living, and then you're going to be able to produce art more effectively and more enjoyably. Right. You, if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're thinking about self-actualization, that's higher up than things like food, shelter, clothing, yes. that sort of thing. Absolutely. So when Goins is talking about making money to make art... He is talking about focusing on what is important, that the end of making art is the making art. The means of making art is making money off of the art, rather than thinking that the end is making a bunch of money from your art, where the means is the art. Yeah. I One quote that I really liked from the book is, we must be creating with full bellies and full souls. Mm -hmm. And it just talks about, like, more about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, you have to be provided for before you can create. Mm. Yeah, exactly. You can't you can't draw from a well that's empty. Exactly. Um, when you're looking at ways of making money to make art, for most of us, we start out with making our day job a patron of our art. We're going to talk more about patrons inside of another episode, but this idea is that setting aside a portion of your income from your day job in order to fund your to fund your art. So in the case of writing, it may be setting aside a portion of your of your paycheck every two weeks in order to pay for writing software or to pay for website hosting or the sorts of things that you need in order to do in order to do writing. Yeah. Uh, it's important to remember that sometimes you don't I'm going to contradict you a little bit. Okay, go for um, it. 
Sometimes you don't need fancy things to write. Like, you don't actually need a writing software. I think we both use Scrivener. Yes. Which is, like, a great software. But I wrote, like, five novels on Google Docs. Yes. Like, you don't need to pay for writing. But when you get to a point where you can afford paying for writing, that's when you should look at budgeting your money maybe a little better and, like, setting some aside. Yes, exactly. That's a good point that you can make do without all of the fancy gadgets. The next question that we want to pose to you and that Jeff Goyne poses in the book is, are you in it for the money or for the art? Mm-hmm. And we talked, Jack talked about this a little bit when he said that you don't make art as a means to making money, like money is not the end, the art is the end. Uh, you have to make art to make art. Yeah. And, you know, this is actually something that I've been thinking about recently because, you know, I have a lot of projects that are on the that are on the boilers right now Mm -hmm. where, you know, I'm beginning to self-publish my short stories and everything that goes along with self-publishing as far as getting reviewers and getting the word out and trying to sell them more. And to a degree, it's kind of sucked the joy out of writing for me. And so recently I've been trying to, you know, rekindle the joy of writing where I'll just write kind of dumb little, dumb little snippets mm-hmm. where it's like, nobody will ever read this and it's just for me and it's just fun. Yes. Um, and that sort of thing has been important in helping me to recognize, you know what, I can slow down a little bit on my output. I don't need to be demanding that I produce so much every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not National Novel Writing Month yet, so I don't <laughs> need to be writing, you know, 1,600 words a day or 2,000 words a day, which is what I normally do so that I have time to take off a day once a week. You said you're doing, like, dumb stuff that's just, like, silly just for yourself. I'm such a big proponent in doing self-indulgent writing. Yeah. Like, someone said the quote, I don't know who, but... If, either, if the book you want to read is not in the world, then you have to put it into the world yourself. Yes. Something along those lines. Uh-huh. So, like, most of my projects start out as super self-indulgent writing, and it's just, like, it makes it enjoyable. It does mean I, like, draft one more than any other part of the writing <laughs> process. I'm in draft two of Witch's Blood right now, and it is not as much fun as draft <laughs> one was. Yeah. But it's still fun, so I'm still enjoying it. Yeah, the second point that Goins brings up is that a thriving artist masters many crafts. Um, I don't, again, going back to adages that we've heard but can't quite cite, um, I recall reading somewhere that every writer needs a librarian friend because the librarians know where to find all the information. And one of the wonderful things about librarians is that they have a broad knowledge base and they know where to go to find more in-depth information. With a as a writer, it's pretty pretty likely that you're going to be digging into topics at a level that exceeds what you're normally used to, whether you're writing realistic fiction or whether you're writing science fiction or fantasy fiction, whatever it may be, you're going to have to be doing some research for your projects. And in the process, you're going to you're going to learn a lot to the point where you may have you may have read more books about the ways that governments collapse than the average, you know, the average person. And you kind of become an expert in that, in that, not that you have a degree, but in that you're familiar with the concepts. Yes, because you have to be familiar enough with what you're writing about 
the average person, you seem knowledgeable, but to an and to an expert, it's plausible. Yes. But like, it's not necessarily expert level. So we've talked a lot about uh, we've talked about research, but you can use other other skills inside of your inside of your writing. Um, some of the things that I personally have used are um, role playing and game design, where sometimes I'll step back and say, you know. How would I do this if I were running a a session of my favorite role playing game? I actually did this this past weekend where I was trying to figure out, okay, I have like four different plot lines that are going on inside of this story. How am I going to like how am I going to handle all of them? And I was thinking about a mechanism that I use when i'm when I'm dming inside of a role playing game of using these timers and thinking, oh, well, if I create a timer for each of my for each of these subplots, oh. then I can lay it all out, and then I can go through with you know my note cards, and I can interweave them so that it's an interesting, varied adventure. Yeah, absolutely. I've never used the timer method specifically, but I do use index cards where you can arrange like the multiple timelines. A lot of the a lot of the things that go into being a good dungeon master are really important for writing where you're thinking about, oh, I want my you know, I don't want to spring a trap on my players without them knowing and having a chance to avoid the trap. So I need to foreshadow yes. foreshadow the trap. Um, which when you think about inside of a writing case, you're like, oh, of course, of course there needs to be foreshadowing for, for the trap. Um, so game design is also helpful. And then things that can enhance your work and kind of add a richness to it are things like music composition, drawing. I have zero, ex- I have like zero, absolutely no talent with drawing. But it is really helpful when you're yeah. trying to do like a character study or drawing a map or whatever that may be. Yeah, I had, I was at a writing conference a couple of months ago and one of the like hosts of the writing conference to, and this goes back to our previous point about like using money to patronize your art. Yes. Um, she, every time she like hits a really big writing milestone, she commissions art of her characters. Oh, that's and awesome. And I'm like... I need to start doing that. Like, I want official art of my characters. Please and thank you. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So even if you don't have the skill to do it, you can draw, like like you said, like have a librarian friend or have like an artist friend. Mm -hmm. And also if you commission art from someone else, you're helping support other artists. And I think it's really important to support, the artists support each other. For sure. I've definitely found that as I've begun, you know, dipping my toe into publishing and that sort of thing. It makes me much more you know, willing to shell out for, you know, ebooks or commissions or mm-hmm. those sorts of things where it's like, yes, because I know where you're at because I'm there now. Yes, absolutely. Um, you can also draw on your own lived experience. Mm-hmm. That can add a richness to your writing. Like a couple of weeks ago, we published the Objective Correlative episode. Yes. And like your lived experience can really feed into like the Objective Correlative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this also goes back to what we were talking about a couple episodes ago with um, sensitivity readers and beta readers, where having experiences out in the world prepare you to be able to handle messy topics inside of inside of your writing, if that is what you're choosing to choosing to handle, and also gives a, a richness that you can add into your prose. Absolutely. The third topic is the thriving artist owns his work. And this is 
on one side, it's a very technical thing, like, there's copyright laws and, like, ownership, and when you're signing a contract for publishing, you never want to, like, sign away the rights to your world. Like, you want to keep those rights. Yes. So that's super important, but then there's, like, the more meta sense of owning your work, and Zach, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, if I might add a, a little something and explain why there's this cryptic note inside, yes. of, our, inside of our show outline. I was thinking of the example of uh, um, Taylor Swift. I am not a Swifty, so I needed to go to to a family member who is a Swifty to be like, "Hey, can you explain this to me?" Because I did not understand what the big deal was with the with the re-release of all of these oh, of yeah. all of these the old songs. The re-recording, Taylor's version. Yes. I am a Swifty. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you know this story about how the rights to those to those songs were owned by the producer and not by Taylor Swift herself. And so these re-recordings were a way of her being able to own her work inside of a legal sense to be able to to profit off of them to a greater extent. Is yes. that is that about that, right? That's, that's about right. There's, like, more to it. Like, but she owns some of the rights, but not all of the rights. Yes. She owns, like, the songs themselves, but not the recordings of the songs. Yeah. So it was complex. It was messy. Um so yes, what, you got it. Yeah, when we're talking about the more metaphorical sense of owning your work, I think a a big part part of that is owning it, as in like accepting it and making it a part of you, mm-hmm. and being willing to own up to the fact that it's you know it's not perfect. Um, recently, I was looking through a a novel that I wrote years ago which I have decided not to pursue any further, but to use as kind of like a mind to pull out um, to pull out elements for other projects. And as I was reading it, I was, you know, that thing that where you're, you're reading over your own writing and it's just like nails on chalkboard because you're like, yeah. ooh, wow, um, I am so much better than that now. Exactly. Um, but the thing that I was recognizing was that, you know, it's not horrible. It's not... You know, it's not as good as I would be able to do now, but I can I can own it and say, yes, this is mine. And I've grown a lot since then. Um, And this is, you know, the same for because even as you as you publish books, you're going to you're going to continue to grow and develop as a writer to the point where you get to, you know, your fourth or fifth book. And you look back on the first one, you're like, oh, my goodness, I you know, I made some errors in there. But it doesn't change the fact that it's published and that it's out there and that it's making you money. So there's nothing to be there's nothing to be ashamed of there. And yes. I think that's one element of owning your yeah. work. And you hear published authors say this all the time, especially after they've published like several books. They're like, Oh, I wish I hadn't published my first book. Like mm-hmm. it's just not as good as what I can do now. Like, so there's no shame in where you were as a beginner. I think another part of it is uh, not comparing your work to other people's, oh, yes. both in the drafting stage and in the final stage. Because, you know, another adage, we just love these uh, unquotable um, adages where it's the don't compare your work in progress to somebody else's finished product because it's not a fair comparison. But even by the same token, you don't want to compare your finished product to another person's finished product. Because it's not you. And even if you were to go back and rewrite, you know, somebody else's somebody else's project, you would do it differently. Even, you know, I am currently listening to uh, The Name of the Wind, which has gorgeous, gorgeous prose. 
Um, and I really enjoy the I really enjoy the prose and really enjoy the experience of of listening to it. Um, but I don't compare my prose that I write with uh, Patrick Rothfuss's prose because we have different styles, we have different life experiences, and we have different expectations. If I were to go and rewrite my own version of The Name of the Wind, it would be different than the way that Rothfuss puts it. And that doesn't necessarily make it worse, it just makes it mine. Different is not bad. Yep. Like, a diversity of work is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like, if everyone was writing the same stuff, like, as great as Shakespeare is, like, if we only ever had Shakespeare to read, we would probably get a little sick of it. Yeah. Like, for sure. Even though he's like the greatest playwright of all time, like, we would, you still get bored. So, we want to add like more diversity into the world of creativity. And remember that that's a good thing that even if, like, your thing isn't perfect, which it will not be because perfection is an unachievable goal, mm-hmm. it will still be good and you should put it out into the world. Thank you so much for tuning in to Quick Pros Quo. We will see you next time for another episode of Real Artists Don't Starve.